Alright family, well we're going to go ahead and get started real quickly with this parasha Kitsa and um, I just want you to know that last week's parasha or the week prior to that parasha this week and the next couple of, couple of parashas are pretty much are going to deal a lot with the building of the tabernacle. Uh, please understand that. And there's a, there's a great deal that the Father wants to share with us in, in, in order to understand what does it take to build his tabernacle. This is important folks. He is showing us something in the natural as a physical tabernacle to reveal something in the spiritual so that we may understand. Although we are a spiritual tabernacle to him, we understand that. With that said, we need to understand how do we raise this spiritual tabernacle. Well, he's given us, I believe, the pattern in the original tabernacle and how to do it. We don't have to guess. We really don't. There's very little guessing to do here. He has shown us a model, a blueprint on how to do it. We just need to kind of conform to that blueprint and follow what he wants us to do, bury ourselves in our desires, and just come in agreement with what he wants to do for the betterment of his kingdom, and ultimately for the betterment of all of us, because our desire is for the Messiah to return, right? It's been the desire for humanity for thousands of years now. We want the Messiah to return. And um, many of us want that, but we don't know really how to, we don't know what our role is in order to make that happen. And, and I think that's where a lot of this uh, frustration comes in, and in some cases, hopelessness, because we don't, we don't know even where to start. So, let's, let, again, the next several parashas has to deal with the construction of the tabernacle, and don't look at it as something boring. I understand that it's probably boring because it's a tent, and, and we really, it's, again, completely unconnected. It's, it's not connected to us. There's a, there's a disconnection there. But when you look at it through the lens of the people, the tabernacle as the people, I promise you it's going to get more exciting studying the temple service and studying the order that the Father has established in here. Because now it's connected to us. You see? Everything is connected to us, folks. So, this parasha opens up with Numbers 30, 11. It says, the Lord said to Moses, when you take a census, right off the bat. Okay, now that we talking about this building of this tabernacle, the first order of business that he says in here, or not the first, but rather continuing the order of business, is when you take a census of the people of Israel, then he shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Amen? So let's look at this. When you take a census, in Hebrew is kititzah. Okay? And what that means is from the Hebrew word nasa, which literally means to what? to be lifted up, to raise up. Look, it can even have the connotation of be given in marriage. Interesting. Because when he lifts you up, it's kind of like when we come into the wedding vows, you have a different name, don't you? And that either that name will either lift you up or that name will bring shame to you. Not all names are good. So you want to carry a name that's going to bring honor. In this case, Kitisai is showing us that the census was for the purposes of elevating Israel because they are going to carry his name now. You got to look at this all through the eyes of again through marriage vows so that we can really fully understand. So let's see. Now with that understanding, I want to share what Or Chaim has to say in here. And the Or Chaim says, this then is the meaning of the statement kitisa et rosh, because that's how he says in Hebrew. This expression refers to the lifting of the heads, similarly that which is stated in Genesis 40, 13. Pharaoh will lift up your head, in which lifting the head refers to the elevation of a stature, so to speak. So remember when uh, Joseph gave the prophecy to both the baker 
and uh, the man who poured the wine as well, okay, the, the, the cupbearer. So what was the idea? He said that in three more days, Pharaoh is going to lift your head up. That was good. It was a good thing, and it happened. So it carries the same meaning in here. The census is for the purpose of lifting you up, essentially. In our verse, it means that through this mitzvah, meaning this commandment, you will lift the heads, raise the stature of the children of Israel whose heads had been lowered. Why has the heads been lowered? According to Orchaim, it says, due to their falling in the incident of the golden calf. So now that this incident of the golden calf, the, the, the Torah here is not working in chronological order, by the way. And all the rabbis of Israel have, have, have come to the understanding that the Torah wasn't written in a chronological order. So this lifting of the head in here is due to the fact that the golden calf has taken place. Now, if you want to keep it in the way we're reading, we can know that Hashem is a sovereign God, isn't he? And I don't know, something tells me that he knew they would fall on the golden calf, regardless. So however you want to interpret that, what we do know is that the reasoning for the census is to elevate them. And to be elevated means that they have to fall. And this is what the sages are saying. They fell from their stature. So now the father has to number them, elevate them essentially. So Leviticus 27.32 says, And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tithe, that means the tenth of every herd and the flocks, every tenth animal, all that passes under the herdsman's staff, the rod, shall be holy to the Lord. So the way they would do this is they would pass the animals through, the rod would stand, and every ten animal, they would yank it. You know, the, the shepherd's staff had a hook. Okay, every ten one, pull them in. It didn't matter what it looked like, whether it was good or bad. Every tent belonged to the Lord. This is kind of like what this is talking about with Kititsa, to elevate you. Look, Ezekiel 20, 37, I will make you pass under the rod. This is talking about now later in the future. I will make you pass under the rod. What rod are we talking about? The shepherd's rod. Who's sh shepherd's rod? Yeshua. Every, he says, I'm going to make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Why? Because every tent belongs to the Lord. Amen? So now the sense is in connection with Yeshua's teaching. <clears throat> it is my pleasure and my heart to always reveal the parables of the Messiah in the context of Torah. Because I believe that this is how we really uh, get more convicted when we start seeing the Messiah's teaching actually all relate to the parashas that we study every year. They're connected in there. Now, don't get discouraged if you've gone through a parasha one year now, or maybe even two, and you're still not getting it. Okay? Because I got news for you, folks. The Jewish people have been studying Torah since the age of five. Okay? So... It, this is why it's called portion. There may be something this year that you do not see. The next year you will catch it. I, I, can, I promise that. So we need to be patient. And as we go through this parasha, understanding and making the connection with Yeshua's teaching. This takes sometimes a little bit of time. That's all. So don't be discouraged in this. So where's the census in connection with Yeshua's teaching? Let me, let me share this with you. I was really, really excited when I saw this. In the Septuagint. How many of you know the Septuagint translation? Okay. Septuagint translation, folks. Now, you guys know that I love Hebrew. I love Hebrew. I love Israel. I love the Jewish people. I love my king. Okay? But I don't reject Greek texts because it's not Hebrew. Okay? To be honest with you, the Septuagint Bible, it's the oldest translation that we have today, folks. 
Anybody know when this was actually translated? When it was compiled together and canonized? 200 years before Christ. That's how old this thing goes. That means that the translation of the Septuagint goes back to the Hebrew before the Masoretic text. I don't know if you guys know the history behind this, but the Masoretic text came a thousand years before the original Hebrew. It's a thousand year gap in there. That's why when they found the Dead Sea Scroll, they were so happy, like, wow, we got something that's old and that we can compare to the Masoretic text. Okay, this translation in here, which is the Greek, the ancient Greek, the Greek before even Yeshua's day, it's from the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew. Now, what I like about the Septuagint is that the Greek that's there, by the way, who translated the Septuagint? The 70 elder. That's why Septuagint in Greek is 70. This would have been the Jewish scholars of that time, which means that the, the Greek that's in here is very influenced by the old Hebrew. It's not, yeah, exactly. It's not Hellenized. It's, it's really influenced by, again, the culture of that time. So we're talking about 200 years. Think about this before Christ came into the scene, that these, these manuscripts in here were translated. So this is about the oldest that it gets. You're not going to get any older than this. It's very, very reliable translation. I want to share this in the Septuagint. It says, this same verse that we just read, Kititsa, okay? The Septuagint actually shares a little bit more. It doesn't contradict the Hebrew, but rather elaborates more. It says, if thou take account, it says, of the children of Israel in the surveying of them, and they shall give everyone a ransom for his soul to the Lord, then there shall not be among them a destruction in the visiting of them. Wow, it reads a little bit different. Because it's saying that the purpose for this, this uh, census, which we're going to talk about now in the account, the purpose of this census is so that when he visits them, they will be destroyed. Now, there is a time of visitation. I hope you understand that. There is a time where the Lord is going to make a visitation to this nation. And the question is, are you going to be covered? This is why, again, this whole thing with the half shekel is very, very important. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's look at this. When thou take account. Let's look at this word account. Because in the Septuagint, it's translated as account. And I found that very interesting. Again, I don't discriminate because it's Greek. Let's see what the word account. In the 1828 Webster's, the, the, the definition for account is a registry of a debt or a credit. Of debts and credits or charges. An entry in a book or a paper of things bought or sold. Of payments, services, including the names of the parties to the transaction. Date. Price and value of things. Now, folks, let's think for a minute. Because it says that an account means a registry of a debt or a credit. I got news for you. Kititsa means that he elevated you. Okay? You were purchased. He elevated you. And the Septuagint now is revealing something that's a little bit deeper in the meaning of when he purchased you. That means that you now are in debt to him. Look what it says in here. A registry of debts and credits and debts or credits or charges and entry in a book. What book? In this case, Book of Life. Think about this. What have you done or what rather are you doing 
since the time you said yes to Yeshua. Because this is why the Torah is so important, folks. It's not just, oh, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. It's, yes, thank you for saving me. But I know that now I have an account to you. I owe. I owe you. Do we owe him? <laughs> In more ways than others. Yeshua presented this in Matthew chapter 25, 19. The parable makes more sense now. When we understand Kitizah and, and purchasing and owing. Look what it says in here. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. This Greek word here translates back to that word Kitizah. Accounts. Interesting. And he who had received five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of the master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me to two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. And turn to the joy of the master. Now, the context in here is saying that the master came to settle accounts. That's what the parasha is all about. When he elevated you, you became indebted to him. And now that you endeavor to him, when he returns back, he's going to collect. That's why the parable is all about. See, we don't understand Kititzah. We're not going to make sense of this parable. That he, he purchased you and now there's a charge that you owe him. By the way, you owe him your life. Okay? Just in, and just in case you try to figure out the computation, how much percentage to owe him, you owe him 100%. You don't need your calculator. You owe him everything. Okay? So just put your calculators away. So look, I will enter, it says in here, enter into the joy of your master. He also who have received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be hard men, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scatter no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But the master answered and said, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you have to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I shall have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For the effort to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, it says. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. This connects, folks. By the way, let me go back. I got to share this with you. Sorry, here. This, because it says in here that when the master comes, he's settling accounts, okay? This is right here. After a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. So he's going to come to settle accounts with us. But listen, in the, in the, in the Septuagint, when does this take place? Then there shall be, uh, not be among them a destruction in what? The visiting of them. The parable of the talents is about the Lord's visitation to us. I'm getting this. 
He's going to come. He's going to visit us. And he's going to demand accounts. I'm getting this. Why? Why is he going to demand accounts on you? Because you were counted in the census. If you were counted in the census, then there is a reckoning that you're going to have to provide for the Lord on the day of his visitation. Get this. Now, don't be scared. It's a good thing that you were counted. Do now what is worthy for your counting. That's the teaching in here with the Septuagint that is presenting with Matthew 25, 19 to 30. Because, again, he is coming back and he's going to settle. And if you're not producing, then you're being lazy, essentially, according to the ways of the Lord. You're being worthless. The Lord is not looking for people worthless, folks. He has established. Now, remember, it says in, the, in Kitisa, it means that he elevated you. So if he elevated you, means that the Lord is not going to be expecting anything that's beyond your needs. He's going he's to expect what he's giving you. Notice that in the parable of the talents, he gave each different talents. He gave some more, some middle, some less. Work with what he's giving you so that you can produce for his kingdom. Amen? Look, I want to share this with you. Continuing here. So when you take a census of the children of Israel, this is the ESV, the English Standard Version. Register them, it says in here. When you take a, a census of the children of Israel to register them, then each shall give an atonement for his life to Jehovah, right? So in here, in the Septuagint, it says, when thou take an account, we already covered that, of, of the children of Israel, in the surveying of them, it says. Now, this is uh, slightly different between registering them and surveying them. Let's look at this word and surveying them. Why I'm comparing, because this is a much older text, folks. That's why. Let's see what it means by surveying them. Look, the 1828 Webster survey means to inspect. Look, to take a view of, to view with attention, to view with a scrutinizing eye, to examine you. In other words, you think that he's scrutinizing you and viewing you and looking over you? He is, because now you've been counted. He's going to scrutinize. He's going to view. He's going to literally dissect you from head to toe completely. Look. In Hebrew, it says this. It says, Now it says, That is the word for registering then too, which means to scrutinize. But in Hebrew, means from pakat, which means to attend, to visit, to take care of. Look. To invest with purpose or responsibility. So when he's talking about that I'm going to, re to register them or rather to survey them, that means that he is looking at you from head to toe. He is scrutinizing through you from head to toe for the purpose of investing with a purpose or responsibility. Are you getting this, folks? He is pulling your aside now for a reason because he's going to elevate you and he is going to equip you for your calling in that equipping of the calling, when he returns back, he wants and is going to demand an account of what you did with that talent. This is amazing, folks. Power of the talents makes a whole lot more sense now than it ever did before. Look, to tend to, to visit, to take care of, to invest with the responsibility. Look, investing in office, essentially. Investing in office, folks. Do you know that the Lord God of Israel has invested in you? He has 
put 100% investment in each and one of us, folks. What are we doing with it is the question. Because you see, this all connects. This all connects with the building of the tabernacle of David. If we're not taking our positions, that means that we essentially saying to the Lord that this investment that he gave us is not, it's not worthy then. And guess what? When he returns back for his visitation, he's going to demand what you did with it. We can't take this lightly, folks. I don't know about you. I don't take it lightly. Okay? I don't take it lightly at all. I'd rather be safe than sorry. Let's put it that way. And the reality is, if he's investing you with a purpose, by the way, notice in here, investing with a purpose. He gave you salvation. He gave you atonement. He elevated you. Now he's going to invest in you for a purpose. And that purpose is not to go serve yourself, by the way. Because up to this point, that's all you've been doing. Serving yourself. Now he's saying, I want you to stop serving yourself. Allow me to, to take care of you and invest now your time in me. Take your time, your precious little time that you have, the whole whopping 70 years if you remake it that far in this world, and live it with a purpose. Look. So it says in here, now that we understand what that means, then it says, Ven, uh, ish kofer. It says, Venatnu is from the word Natan to take. But look, let me share something with you. Venatnu ish kofer is to give. It's from the Hebrew word Natan. To give was appointed, was established. In other words, when he took you, he took you for a purpose, for investment, to establish you. For what purpose, guys? Let's look at this. This word in here, Natnach, uh, Natach, a servant of the temple. You see, it all goes back to temple. A servant of the temple given into the sanctuary, a citizen, essentially. All this should start making sense because haven't you been grafted into Israel? That's your new citizenship now. We see how this all ties in. And what about temple? A servant of the temple. Are you not considered a priest into the Lord God of Israel? Maybe not of this physical temple here because that belongs to the Levites, but to the original temple. He is calling you for investing purposes so that you can serve, folks. You see, this all comes back to servitude in the Levites and understanding the order of temple service. Why does he want servants of the temple? Because the only way the temple is going to be raised up again is if we have servants in the temple. What happens if we actually build a building and we don't take care of it? Deteriorates, right? We need servants. We need people who are going to serve to maintain the upbringing of this building that he is building in these last days. And for the purpose, it says of kofen, for atonement. Atonement meant to cover, to wipe off, to atone, to forgive, essentially. To deny, essentially. Look. Again, going back to the 1828 Webster, account means a registry of death. I want to remind you of that. But there's a registry of death right now. You owe the king right now. You owe him. If you take anything out of this teaching today, let it be that. You walk out of here knowing that you owe something. You owe him everything, folks. Why do I say that we need to take this with us? Because <laughs> our life is not our own anymore. We need to understand salvation through the Torah. You were saved for a purpose. You were saved to serve him. Please understand that. 
So let's look at this. In Deuteronomy, Kititza, Exodus 30, 12 says this. Kititza et Rosh B'nai Israel. Okay? Now, why I put these two in here? Because we just talked about the accounts, right? The registry. How the Septuagint says account. Does that edify the Masoretic text? It does. Let me share something with you. If you notice in here, I highlighted, in Exodus 30, 12, it says Kititza. But look what it says in Deuteronomy 24, 10. Deuteronomy 24.10 says, Kitatse. Not Kitatsa, but Kitatse. It says, right? Vereacha ma shamatet. Me avu. I'm sorry. Me uma. Okay. I'm going to give you the translation in English, but do you notice, even if you don't know Hebrew, you can tell. Is there something similar between this one and this one? Some similarities, right? They almost look identical, actually. They're the same letters. Right? Interesting. Well, is ex yeah, exactly. Except that this is an Aleph and this is a Hey. Okay? That's it. But they are the same, essentially. So, the sages of Israel saw a connection with Kititsa, this Torah portion, in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 24.10. See, this is how the sages come up with these, these teachings, themes that connect in the Torah portion. So, let's see what's the connection in here. Deuteronomy 24.10 says this, what I just read to you in Hebrew. When you lend, that is kitetzeh, when you lend your brother a loan, do not go into his house to get his pledge. So the opening of Deuteronomy 24.10 is when you lend to somebody. Keep that in mind. Because what happens when you lend to somebody, there's a debt now. You see? Look. Let's see here what our great sages of Israel say. The Major Shabbat says this. The Holy One, blessed is he, said to Moses, Moses, Israel is obligated to repay me what they borrow from me. This is amazing. This comes in agreement with the Septuagint. It says, Israel is obligated to what? To repay me what they borrow from me. I.e., an example, what did they owe me? Our verses allude to this. For it is stated, when you take a census, kititza, which can be interpreted along the lines of which is stated elsewhere, Deuteronomy 10, kititzeh, of any amount of your fellow, which is Deuteronomy 24.10. The verb taseh, translated as make a loan, has no exact English equivalent, it says. It indicates that someone, usually a creditor, causes someone else, usually a borrower, to owe him money, essentially. That's the understanding of this. The Midrash, it says in here, Homiletically interprets our verse expression ki titsa as if it is written ki titse. When you cause others to owe God by telling Moses tase ki titsa se et bene Israel, thus meant that Moses was to make the children of Israel aware of the fact that they owed a debt to God for their sin involving in the golden calf. Essentially, the sin that they committed in the golden calf, they now owe for that. That's why Kititzeh came after the golden calf, essentially. You elevate them now because of what they committed. God had a debt, look what it says, God had a debt to collect from Israel after the sin of the golden calf. For our Midrash maintains, as to several others, that our passage regarding the half shekel chronologically follows the sin of the golden calf, which is recorded later. You see, that's, where the, that's the idea of why he, he gave him the shekel, the half shekel, for atonement. Why atonement? Because of the golden calf and what they did. 
Becoming subject to punishment for a sin is compared to having a financial obligation as a result of borrowing money. It's alluded to the same. So we are pretty much in debit now, and we owe to our Heavenly Father. For what? For committing the sin of the golden calf. Now, can I ask you a question? Were you there for the golden calf? Were you there for the golden calf? Mark, were you there for the golden calf? Was any of us there for the golden calf? I know I wasn't there. But you see, we're going to cover this in a minute. While we were not there for that golden calf, we had created another golden calf. See? And this is why the scripture is cyclical. To teach us events that are going to happen so that we can prepare and that we can have wisdom and knowledge in how to, how to deal with it. Look, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, oh, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You know, if we can just understand this right here, that Corinthians, again, is talking about Kitsa. See, all these things come back to the Torah portions. Kitsa means that you are deaf. You're not your own anymore. That's what Apostle Paul is elaborating here to the Corinthian church. You are a temple of the living God. What does he say, temple? Because in Kitsa, it also has to do with temple service. This all goes back to the same, same thing, folks. That's why he says in here, you are not your own. For you were what? Bought with a price. How were you bought with a price? Well, the half shekel. <laughs> we're going to cover that. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God, what? In your body, folks. Glorify God with the things that you do. Romans 13, 8 and 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, folks, it says. That's our duty right now as we speak. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, we're talking about the law of loving one another through the Torah eyes, folks, not through the world's eyes. Okay? We're talking about loving one another means I'm going to extend the righteous judgment of Torah. I'm going to extend that to you, whether I like you or not, irregardless. Okay? Simply put. I don't have to like you, by the way, and that's a misconception in Christianity. I don't have to like you. I just have to pass righteous judgment on you. Simply put. Nowhere in the Bible says that I have to have, you know, Deep, warm, fussy feelings for you, viper who's trying to bite me. I don't have to do that. I just have to pass on the righteous judgment. That's why he's talking about loving one another. For the commandments, you shall commit you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summing up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. Okay, the fulfilling of the law is not the termination of the law. It doesn't end there is what I'm saying. It's talking about the law concerning loving your neighbor as yourself. You know that when Hashem gave his word, there was two tablets, right? Two tablets. The sages say that one corresponds to heaven and the other one corresponds to earth. They say that the first five correspond to the heavenlies. And then the last and the other tablet correspond to the earth. Why? Because one has to do with divine service to the Almighty, and the other one has to deal with the fleshly matters of this affair of this life. So, if you look at tablet number one and tablet number two, if you decide to go to tablet number two, which is the matters of this earth, and you decide that today I am not going to be nice to my neighbor and I'm not going to extend righteous judgment, then you have abolished all the commandments of tablet number two. Not one, two. What is tablet number two? The affairs of one another. 
I'm getting this. Because the Torah is broken in segments, folks. It's not all the same. You can't, you know, one, one aspect of the Torah, it, they're not interchangeable. The laws of the kings, the laws of the women, they're not interchangeable. The laws for loving your neighbor, the laws for loving God, again, they're not interchangeable. So he's saying in here, loving your neighbor as yourself, that's what you need to owe at this point. It's relationship between one another. Extend a Torah judgment between one another. That's what he's ask, asking in this case. Exodus 30, 13, moving on, it says, each one, now that we understand what's the purpose of the numbering, each, it says, each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel of the sacred shekel, it says. Okay? The shekel is 20 garas, half a shekel as an offering to Hashem. Everyone who is numbered in the census, from 20 years old and upwards, shall give Hashem's offering, it says. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less. It doesn't matter you're, whether you're a rich person or whether you're poor. The half shekel goes the same for every single body. Meaning, you cannot purchase your atonement. Yeah. It's the same. There's no partiality. Look. So the poor should not give less than the half shekel. When you give Hashem's offering to make atonement for what? For your lives, it says. Now, let's look at this about the half shekel. The shekel was a specific weight of silver that Moses instituted as a standard coinage at that time. Okay? So it's a, it's a, it's a measure. It's not necessarily a, 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 a dollar amount. In the Torah, each part of the shekel represents a soul, though. Okay? So that's why it's half a shekel, half a shekel. Each and one of us contributes to a half a shekel, essentially. Each part corresponds to a soul. Look. Psalms 49, 7 through 11 says, Truly no man can ransom another, it says. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, folks. This is the reason why the half shekel was created, folks. And this corresponds to Yeshua. Look. The coin of fire, folks. I'm going to share this through the Midrash Tanhuma And what the sages of Israel talk about this half shekel and what it all entails. In the Midrash Tanhumah Rashi, it says this, God showed Moses a coin of fire and said to him, like this they shall give. And it was a coin of fire that he showed Moshe. Where did he get this? He actually got this coin of fire from underneath the throne, it says, according to what they're talking about. Look, each half shekel coin also corresponds to the heavenly coin of fire from beneath the throne of glory. Now, I believe this because remember, folks, that when Moses went to the mountain, he saw a blueprint of a tabernacle. And that's when he made a copy here on earth. So Moses didn't, Moses didn't just fabricate this. He actually saw. He saw physical, something physical. He saw it. So what the sages are saying is that the coin from that tabernacle, the, earth, the heavenly tabernacle, it is the coin for the half shekel that atones for each and one of our souls. Very interesting, because it's not of man-made. It's not of this world. It's something that's from the heavenlies. Look, Numbers Rabbah says this. The Holy One, blessed be He. Now listen to this. This is very interesting. The Holy One, blessed be He, reply, I do not ask for ransom according to my ability to pay. This is amazing. Notice what he's saying. I do not ask for a ransom according to my ability to pay, he says but according to the way they can pay, their ability to pay. In other words, <laughs> this is just powerful, guys. God is saying that the ability in which you pay 
for the ransom, it's not going to be according to his ability, meaning he's perfect, folks. There's no way we can live up to that when you really think about it. He's saying, I'm not putting the standards according to my ability, but I'm going to put the standards according to their ability. In other words, what he is requiring of us today, it's something that we can do. <laughs> he's not putting a standard that's according to his standard and his perfection, but rather he's putting a standard that is doable for human beings to accomplish. That's the grace of our God. So that's why it says in here, I do not ask for ransom according to my ability to pay, because if we were to ask for ransom according to his ability to pay, we will all be doomed, because we can never live up to the way he, he can pay. He is completely perfection, but only in accordance to their ability to pay. Then he took a single coin of fire from beneath the throne of the glory, that is the heavenly tabernacle, from beneath the throne of glory and showed it to Moses saying, they shall give a coin that resembles this one. Okay? What the coins that we have here on earth today, they always have a inscription in the image, doesn't it? I wonder what's the inscription in the image in that coin of fire. Food for thought. Look, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. This corresponds to Numbers Rabbah. When it says, let's go back so you can see it. When it says, I do not ask ransom according to my ability, but according to the way they can pay. Perfect agreement with the New Testament scriptures in here. So it says in here, but with every temptation, he will also provide a way to escape that you may be able to endure it. Folks, God gives us the ability and the standard that he has set forth in his Torah. It is very doable. Can you please don't listen to the voice of the enemy telling you you can't accomplish it. That is a lie. He has provided a way for us to be able to accomplish this, and he sees it fit that you can do it, folks. You can do it, okay? That's the, the whole thing. You can do it. He has given us the way to do this and to walk in the blessing. So let's keep in here. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say above all, you shall what? Keep my Sabbaths, it says, for this is a what? Sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know, you're there, that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Notice that he's saying that the Sabbath is a sign, right? And that the Sabbath doesn't sanctify you, but who sanctifies you? The Lord sanctifies you. So why do we keep Sabbath? Because the Lord has sanctified you. You're getting it. He doesn't say keep the Sabbath so you can be sanctified. You should already be sanctified. You're keeping the Sabbath because you're already sanctified. That's the idea. But what I want to really get into term in here, folks, is this. There's a couple commandments that he gives in here that seem like they're completely out of order. I mean, he's talking about the building of the tabernacle. And then all of a sudden, he said, by the way, keep my Sabbath, okay? And don't start a fire in your dwellings. Okay, let's continue with the building of the tabernacle now. That's literally how it is. It's like two commandments that don't even belong there. Like, okay, okay, context is everything in Scripture, folks. He's talking about temple service, and we're going to see what, what this all entails in here. So let's move on. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is what? Holy for who? You, it says. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, 
But on the seventh day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Right? Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. That's the therefore now. Observing the Sabbath throughout the generations as a what? As a covenant forever. It is again a sign. By the way, does it sound like he's repeating himself? This is not reading the same scriptures, by the way. We're moving on. This is a different verse. We like five verses down the road already. And he's still saying the same thing. Why does he keep saying the same thing? Well, look at, our, look at our generation today. It's the reason why he kept repeating. You think that God is smarter than us? He knew that we were going to find a loophole in his law to say, I don't have to do it. So he keep, continues to reiterate, it is a sign forever. A sign. Do you know how awesome that is, folks? I don't know about you guys. When you come into a covenant with somebody, specifically somebody that you love, okay? It is so awesome when you have a bond with a person and that one, each party does something for each other as a sign. I think that's just so beautiful. It makes it more intimate. That's why we have wedding rings. It's supposed to be intimacy. You know, here's a sign, honey. I want the whole world to know that I belong to you. Why do we have such a problem? We're showing, if, if we don't have a problem with our spouses to do this, or anybody that we love for that matter, it doesn't have to be a spouse. If we don't have a problem doing this with fleshly matters, why are we so embarrassed to show the world that we belong to him? Do you know the honor, in my opinion, the honor that my king wants a sign between him and me? Do you know the honor that comes with that? And yet today we spit up that? And we say, I don't want to do that. It is an honor that the creator of the universe, the one who formed the Grand Canyon, folks, the one who did everything, wants a sign with you. That is intimacy, folks. It is an honor. That's why whenever he says in the Bible, do this as a sign, do you think I'm going to argue with him? I mean, what does that tell about us when we don't want to do the sign at the same time? Think about that. If your spouse says, well, I don't know, honey, I don't really want that sign between you and me and you. Think about it. How is that going to make you feel? Honey, broke my heart. I wanted this to show the world of our love for each other, and you don't want the sign. How is that going to make you feel? Well, folks, exactly the way you will feel is exactly how God is going to feel. You're not going to feel love. You're not going to feel appreciated. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the Sabbath. It says in here, folks, it's introduced in here in the building of the tabernacle. Now the sages of Israel said that there's a reason for that. It's not just talking about the Sabbath, the ordinary Sabbath for the people of Israel, but rather the sages Hazal expounds that the reason why that and not kindling a fire are put in here, inserted in there, and it appears that it doesn't even belong there, it's because this is all connected to the building of the tabernacle. I'm going to raise, I want to ask a question today. And this is something that happens a lot today. I'm glad that actually the Father is so smart that he put it right here in this text so that we can answer the question. The question is this. If we go feed the hungry on Sabbath, are we breaking the Sabbath? If we go and uh, tend to, let's say, 
Next year, we're hopefully going to start building our little synagogue. Is it okay to go and build the synagogue and talk about the, the, the works of the synagogue and actually go and partake of the labor if it's connected to building the works of the Lord? This is a good question because many in the Messianic movement now have found a loophole. Well, I'm going to go and work, but it's because I'm working for the Lord. You see, I'm going to go now and, and, and you know what? I don't even know half of these people that I'm feeding. For all I know, one of the person that I'm going to go feed today, he could have raped an eight-year-old girl last night. I don't know, but I'm going to go and feed him anyways. I'm saying this, folks, because there's just a lot of unsoundness going around in the Messianic movement. Okay, you know when Yeshua said, feed my sheep, he said my sheep. People within the community, people who were repentant also. Not just people in the community, but people who have a repentant heart. Do you know that you could be feeding right now a rapist with no repentance? He just raped a girl two hours ago, and he's coming to your little pantry to get fed. I ain't partaking of that, folks. I'm not partaking of that. You want food? You're going to show me that you want the Lord. Otherwise, I could care less if you die of hunger. Because my Lord and my God cares about Teshubah more than anything. He cares about the food that you're going to digest spiritually. Not so much what you're going to put in your belly. Moving on in here. No work is allowed, not even for the tabernacle. Because the context of Sage is saying here, that's why he's inserted here. This has to do, because the people were asking, can we, because remember, they're building the tabernacle. Keep that in mind. So the question presents, if we partake in the building of the tabernacle, you know, we hammer, we still got to hammer, we still got to do all these things, but it's for the tabernacle. Would God be pleased with it? The answer is no. Even for the tabernacle, folks, God said, you ought to stop and rest. Let me show you something, folks. No work allowed. What constitutes as work? I do want to go a little up on the limb on this because we never really talked a little bit, a whole lot about Sabbath. <clears throat> but what constitutes as work? It's a good question. In Hebrew, it reads this way. It says, kol ha-oseh malacha bayom ha-shabbat. Mot, it says in here, yumat. Very, very clear. Now, what is the word in Hebrew commonly known for work? In Hebrew, it is avodah. This is amazing. How the scripture puts, inserts this word in here, in the building of the tabernacle, and it puts this word, very interesting. It says in here, kol ha-sed, all that you make, basically, it says, Melacha. Now, this is the word in here, in Hebrew, that it says work. But any other part of scripture, I don't care what part you go, that word is not used for work. The typical word for work is abodah, which is to toil. But in here, it's melacha. What is the difference between abodah and melacha in Hebrew? Big difference. I'm going to share with you. Look. Hebrew word is melacha, and it means property, a deputy ship that is ministry, generally employment, work, abstract, concretely, or as property. Now, what's interesting that the root for this word, melacha, 
is that of an angel. Malacha, which means a one who is sent, essentially. So, the works that they talk by the way, it says in here, uh, never servile. Employment that is never servile. So in here, what it's talking about is the work, again, the context in here is that they're building the tabernacle, and it is the work of the Lord. It's not mundane work. It is work of the Lord. They're saying in here, essentially, that even this type of work of building the tabernacle, hammering and doing all these things, they are to seize it, even on the Shabbat. It's interesting. Because we always like to find a loophole for things. Well, if I go feed the hungry today, Richard, I'm still fulfilling the Sabbath. No, you're not. Sorry. Not by the standards of the Word of God. Maybe by your standards. But that doesn't pass. And the Sabbath, we all stop. And we come and go to the synagogue and learn Moses. That's why this body has cancer and is going to die of cancer. Because nobody wants to come on Sabbath to learn Moses because we're going to run and do our own thing. We want to fulfill our needs. You know what? I have an empty void. I need to go feed somebody. Or I need to go save somebody to make me feel good. And I'm going to do this on the Sabbath, by the way. This is the problem, folks. What happened in the New Testament, Acts chapter 15? What was the, what was the, 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 the ruling for that? That the Gentiles should come to the Sabbath on, come to learn Moses on the Sabbath, right? Okay, if you read later on, I think it's on 12, there was a, there, there, there was a contention that took place that the widows were not being tended and they were not being cared for. And what was, Peter's, what was Peter's response? He said, we will not stop from preaching the word of God to go wait tables. And what did they do? They came together in the Sahedrin, and what did they do? They appointed men who would take care of the widows within the community, by the way. This was all community. He said, as for us, our duty and our job is to preach the word of God. We cannot stop doing that. In other words, by the way, we're talking about order here. Their order was to preach, not to serve. The problem is that everybody in here today, not just necessarily in here, but in the body, wants to do it all. A jack of all trades, master of none, right? We, we, we got that kind of installed in our brain. Well, we're going to now bring that to the kingdom of God. I'm going to be a jack of all trades. I'm going to do it all, God. I'm not going to master any of them, but I'll do them all. That's the problem, folks, because you know what? <laughs> God has a set of order. If you're not meant to be going to feeding the hungry, then guess what? Don't make that your priority. Yeah, you can go and help your brother and sister one day out of the week. Hey, I'll come and help you. Don't make that your sole mission if that's not your mission. Okay? Nothing against feeding the hungry. I'm not, I'm not speaking against that. I'm just saying don't make that your pursuit if it's not your calling. If it's not your calling to be casting out demons, stop trying to cast out demons before one jumps actually at you and beats you up. Because it's not your calling to be doing it. Not all of them were called to cast out demons. This is where the ignorance comes in. Everybody has a position in the temple. Stick to your position and be great at it. And guess what? If we all stick to our position and we're great at it, together, corporately, we are awesome. Because we're all functioning in our calling. This is in here what is talking about the Sabbath. Even for the Sabbath, folks, we all stop. And we come and we tend to the, to, to the, to the people. Now, this is talking about the building of the tabernacle. Keep that in mind. 
Look, Sifra Kedoshim 3, 7 says this. I might think that the building of the sanctuary overrides the Sabbath. Even they were thinking this back then, right? Scripture therefore says, You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the eternal. Rambam Nachmanidi says this. This teaches that all, all of you are obligated to keep my honor. That is, you're going to find that in the Talmud in Yabado 6 8. And as a Mary explains it, you and the sanctuary, you and the sanctuary, both, even the sanctuary. What is the sanctuary? Because it's his sanctuary. Think about this. It says, you and the sanctuary are obligated to keep my honor. Even the sanctuary is to keep the honor. Thus, the building of the sanctuary does not override the Sabbath, they say. Interesting. Now, I believe it because why in the Torah would God put in there, you shall keep my Sabbaths and no kindle fire. Okay, now back to building the tabernacle. That's it. Only those two laws, that's it. It's almost like if they don't belong there. Now, why the kindling of the fire? Same thing. Well, they needed fire to build the, 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 the tabernacle because they have to mold the metal and all that kind of good stuff. Makes sense. Look, Isaiah 58, 13 in the ESV and the Septuagint. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. This is an extension of what uh, additional what is permitted in the Sabbath and what is not. If you look in the Septuagint, look what it says. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, so as not to do thy pleasure on, thy, on the holy days, and shall call the Sabbath a delightful, holy to God, thou shalt not lift up thy foot to work, nor speak a word in anger out of thy mouth. Interesting how the Septuagint adds to that. A word in anger on the day of the Sabbath. Now what does it mean about a word in anger? Look, this word for anger means a violent passion of the mind. Excited by real or supposed injury, usually accompanied with propensity to take vengeance or to obtain satisfaction from the offending party. Anger is also excited by an injury offered to a relation, friend, party to which one is attached, key word. And some degrees of it may be excited by cruelty, injustice, or oppression offered to those with whom one has no immediate connection or even to the community of one which one is a member. So. What it's talking about, what it's trying to tell us, this is the reason why on the Sabbath day, we don't talk politics. You want to know why? Because politics usually lead to what? Anger. That's why on the Sabbath day, we try to refrain talking about money. Why? Because money brings usually depression. You realize how broke you really are? Right? Well, we don't want to know that on the Sabbath. Or you end up you're talking about you know, the finances and thus bringing you back to Oh, I owe this, I owe that. And guess what? That brings to the mind, now it brings you into that place. That's why it says, not talking anger on the Sabbath. That means that your heart and your mind needs to be away from these things. You need a, a mental Sabbath rest. Isaiah 58 says, a mental Sabbath rest. Not just a physical one, but a mental one. You know, you can lay in your bed all day long. All day long. Just don't even come out of your pajamas and violate the Sabbath. Because all you're doing is thinking about work while you're in bed. Getting the point. He wants a complete rest, folks. He wants a complete rehearsal. This is why 
I choose not to talk too much business. Let's just refrain from that. Let's talk about things of the Lord. You know, six days, all you do is talk money and business. Take one day and let's, you know, really like the word of God is so empty that we got nothing else to talk about. There's plenty of the Midrash every week. Every week there's plenty. We could sit here. We used to be into 3 o'clock in the morning back in Florida, Midrashing. But I don't know, mountain time does something different to people. By 7 o'clock, everybody becomes a hermit, ready to go to sleep. I don't know if it's the mountain. I don't know. Back in the city, we didn't have this element. But you know what? My point being is that the time that we are here, instead of bull rushing out of here and or staying here for an extra 15 minutes and just talking about business, why don't we just say, man, you know what? Let's talk about this. What are your thoughts on this? You know, I can't cover everything in a power shop. But at the same time, I'm not going to be chasing everybody around here to Midrash either. You want a Midrash? Let's Midrash. Pastor can do it all. Get up and do something about it. Okay? You want to talk more Bible? Let's talk Bible. Show me what you're talking about and let's get everybody involved. That keeps us away from the bills, from the politics, from Donald Trump, supposedly his corruption. And everything else that's happening in Washington, I really don't care. Things that we keep bringing in that are not important, folks, at the end of the day. They're not important. And all they're going to do is depress you and bring you back to that state. So this is what it's talking about. To excite anger, to provoke, to rouse resentment, to make painful. Your mind and the things that you meditate will either bring joy or pain. Getting this? Exodus 31, 18. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone. Now I want you to remind you in here that it says in here the tablets of the testimony. The tablet serves as a testimony, folks. What does the scripture says? We need one, two witnesses. We need testimonies, right? For the things that we're doing. The tablets serve as a testimony. Written by who? By Moses? By the finger of God himself, folks. Wow. It doesn't get more personal than that, in my opinion. You know, we can sit here and refute the Sabbath all day long. Hey, it was written by the finger of God. Argue that one, bud. Argue that one. I mean, we're done talking here. The finger of God, it says, literally. That means that it came from the Father's heart. So we're going to conclude now, folks, moving on in here with the golden calf. And this is all leading to that. This whole teaching today and the senses and being elevated and, and being in a depth and owing to the Father comes down to this, this golden calf. This is the reason why all this took place because of the golden calf. Exodus 32, 1 says, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods that shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Very interesting part of Scripture. One of the most focal points on the part of Scripture. It opens up by saying, when the people saw that Moses says, Vaira ha'am ki boshesh, Moshe la redet, min ha'ar, in the mountain it says. It says, Vaira ha'am. Vaira means that the people actually saw. Ra'a literally means to see. So let's go back. Because it says, when the people saw, what did the people saw? What did they see? They saw something. And then it says that Moses delayed coming down, right? Look. And here, the delaying is ki 
boshesh. That is the word for the delay in Hebrew. The, the choice word there. And it means, it's from bosh, which means to delay, to be ashamed. But look, to fornicate. Now, what's interesting about this word too, okay, is the boshesh, this word here, for all those who know Hebrew, shesh means six. It's number six. So according to Hazan, Moses was only on the sixth hour. He was only six hours late. That's it. On the sixth hour of starting the new day. On the fourth, because he said, I'll be there 40 days. So on the 40th day, I will come down. So sunset on the 40th day, six hours into it, they already were growing weary. That shows you the patience that these people have, by the way. Okay? But look, to delay, to be ashamed, to fornicate. What is the, the Hebrew word trying to teach us? That a lot of times in the process of waiting, we can fornicate. We need to be careful in that stage of waiting. Look, Or Chaim says this. Alternately, the word saw, okay, may be understood in its literal sense. In accordance with what our sages of blessed memory said in Shabbos 89.8, cited by Rashi, it says this, that Satan claimed that Moses was dead. As a matter of fact, in the Talmud, it says that Hasatan literally showed the people an image of Moses being dead. That's why they said this Moses, they were pointing to something. And it says that they saw. Interesting. Because guess what, folks? The enemy has the power to do that. Now, whether you want to believe that this was in a literal sense, even if it was in a mental, you can mental, you can have a mental picture of something. So whatever Satan lie he whispered to them, it caused them to believe that Moses was dead, essentially. Can I ask you all a question? How many people have believed that Jesus is still dead? There's a lot of people who believe he's still dead. They are convinced he's dead. Look, let's continue here. Hasatan claimed that Moses was dead and proved this. He came and showed the people an image of darkness and gloom and an image of Moses' funeral beer, bombire, indicating that he had died, essentially. Therefore, it states the people saw. That's why it says that the people saw. Meaning, they saw the things mentioned above, which indicated that Moses had died, essentially. Now, this is pretty interesting, and I need you to understand this through the eyes of Israel. Because if that is true, which I believe it is, the people, and why I believe it, because the text itself proves it, the people thought that Moses was dead, right? Let me ask you a question. Did they have a legitimate reason to be frantic at this point? I would say yeah. I mean, think about it. If you're in the wilderness, and you are like miles away into the wilderness, and the one man who is an intercessor to God is dead, now what? What do we do? Where do we go? They didn't know where they were going. Moses was the one who was leading them. So they have no clue. It's not like they had GPS. Okay, well, Moses that turn on GPS, Canaan, let's head to Canaan, follow north. They didn't have that. So they have no idea where they were going. And at this point, they were already so far into the wilderness that they didn't even know how to go back to Egypt. Have you ever been in a desert, in a real desert? There's no landmarks. That's it. You're done. You go into a desert, especially the Arabian desert. If I, if I just put you a mile into it, I guarantee you, with no compass, you, you're dead. Because there is no landmark. Everything looks the same. Yeah, and it changes. 
So you're, you're done. It's not like you got marks that you can go back and say, okay, we're going to track back to Egypt. Remember that stop sign right there, guys? Yep, let's follow that one all the way down this way. No, there's nothing. As a matter of fact, we can compare that to here. Anybody gone hiking here? Even in here is dangerous. You go into these woods out here, all these junipers, they look the same. You're done. I got lost once. Thank you, Way. I know that's why you're laughing. But it's true. You walk, and all of a sudden, it's like, where am I? That's just here. Imagine in the middle of the Arabian desert. You're lost. You're done. So at this point, think about it. What was their thoughts? They'd be becoming frank that Moses died. You know, what do we do? Exodus 32.1, it says, So when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up and make us gods, it says, who shall go before us. Okay? I want to reiterate something in here. It says in here that the people gathered themselves to Aaron. Why did the people gather themselves around to Aaron? The, the sages of blessed memory say this. They say that prior to them going to Aaron, they went to her. And when they went to her, they told uh, her rebuked them. Her told them, what are you guys doing? You knuckleheads, essentially. Worshipping and making other gods? Did you not remember who took us out of Egypt? Did you not remember the miracles that God did for us? And upon her telling the people, and rebuking them, the people basically told, killed them. So this is the way. I'm going to put it in modern time. Her came to her. They went to her. Her told them, you're doing wrong. They took out their 45. Boom. Dead. Okay, Aaron, come here with the 45. Come here, Aaron. Now they're going to come to Aaron. That's why it says that the people came now to Aaron. And Aaron saw what the people did to her. So now Aaron's like, whoa, wait a minute. Okay, you guys want to walk? Sure. <laughs> Think about it. It makes sense, guys. You know, you're in the middle of nowhere. You ain't got no laws. You ain't got nobody going to protect you. you. Bury you. They kill you. They bury you. Nobody will know you even existed. So the people ganged up and killed her, and then they came to Aaron and told them, you know what? You saw what happened to her? What's your answer? This is where it starts. So it says in here, up and make us gods that shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened. Now, the, the, the typical interpretation that we have heard when we were growing up is that the people was asking for, to make him another god, other than Hashem. Wrong. That's not what they're asking. Let me share something in here. It says in here, Kum ose lanu Elohim. Asher, it says, Yilchu lefanehu. Ki ze Moshe. And this Moses, that's why it says this Moses, Ki Moshe ha'ish asher, it says ha'elanu. Okay, I'm going to stop because I know you're not quite understanding what I'm saying. But it says, Kum, it says, Kum ase lanu Elohim. Kum, when it says, let me go back. When it says, up, make us gods. In Hebrew, it's kum ose lanu Elohim. Kum is the word that we use in, 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 in Hebrew understanding. Kum also means resurrection. It's usually uh, uh, connoted to resurrection. For instance, in the New Testament, when Yeshua went to heal Talita, what did he say to Talita? The, the little girl that died. She was like 12 years old and she died. She said, Talita Kumi. What is Talita Kumi? Arise. She was dead. So Kum has the understanding of asleep, being asleep and waking up, 
or being in death and resurrecting. Character connotation is to stand up. So they're saying, kum or selanu, resurrect for us, essentially. It says in here, Elohim. Now the problem with this Elohim in here, the translation and our understanding to this is where it gets misunderstood. They were saying to resurrect another Moses. Why? Because the word Elohim doesn't mean God. This is where, again, our English translation failed. Elohim literally means a judge. It's a translation that it's used for God as well because God is the ultimate judge. But judges here on earth, and in the Bible I can prove that to you, they also carry the title of Elohim, gods. So what they're saying in here is not to build another deity, but rather to raise up, kum, another Moses. Because Moses is dead. Now, how do I prove that? Because it says in here, look. look notice what it says. It says, kum lanu Elohim, asher ki ze Moshe. Because it says, because this Moses, the man, okay, who went up to the, to the mountain, is dead. Let me put it in English so you can see it better. It says, make us gods. Whom shall go before us? As for this who? It doesn't say as, as for this God or as for Hashem. It says Moses. Notice that they're talking about Moses. They're not saying God is dead. They say Moses is dead. So he's saying, now make us another Elohim, make us another judge. Because what was Moses' job? The judge. Moses was the judge. Remember when Jethro came? They made leaders of fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And Moses was the top judge. So whatever they couldn't figure out, they brought it to Moses. So what the people are actually saying in here is, make us another Moses. Now it's interesting how this is actually said in here. They said, make us another Moses. But let me ask you a question, folks. If these people generally wanted another Moses, right? Because that's what it says. As far as this Moses, he's, you know, he's, we don't know what's happened to him. If the people generally wanted another Moses, why didn't they go to Aaron? Think about this. Aaron was there. Aaron was Moses' right hand. Aaron, I mean, uh, uh, Aaron's uh, staff butted. Why not go to Aaron? Begs the question. The sages of Israel said, why not go to, uh, to Aaron? Or better yet, let's just say for argument's sake, they didn't like Aaron. That happens a lot. I don't like that leader. You know what? Everybody, let's go to our camp, to our tents, and let's pray for the Lord to appoint who's the next leader. Why didn't they do that? It's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of options that they had, but instead they told Aaron, make us gods. Look, the Ramban shares something very interesting. It says, rather they were seeking another Moses, it says. Look, they said, Moses, who showed us the way from Egypt into here, for all the journeys were according to the words of Hashem through Moses, right? It's now lost to us, they say. Let us make for ourselves another Moses, who will show the way before us according to the word of God through it. So they wanted another Moses who can continue doing the works that Moses was doing. This is the explanation. They're mentioning that they were lacking the man of who brought us up and not the God who brought them up from Egypt. For, for what they felt they needed was a man of God, essentially. Not a God, but a man who represented God here on earth, essentially. 
Now remember that Moses' job was to judge, but also Moses' job was as a what? An intercessory between man and God. So they needed that intercessor, if you want to call it, that can speak on behalf of God, so to speak. So this is their pursuit, and this is what they're going with this. Look, I want to share something in here real quick. It says that when the people saw that Moses delayed, I wanted to expound that real quick. Because the, what happened in here, folks, is something that is happening today. We grow weary whenever we have to wait. Like I said, according to the sages, it was only the sixth hour into the 40th day, and they already were growing weary. And because of that, they say, you know what? He's dead. Now think about this. Moses goes up to the mountain. Now, anybody seen Mount Horeb? It's a pretty steep mountain. It's nothing to reckon with. It is a pretty steep mountain. Moses is going up there. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't drinking. Right? He has nothing to drink. And it's been 40 days, and now he's late. Think about it. Did they have the right to think that he was possibly dead? Yeah, we probably all would have done the exact same thing. No man can live 40 days with no food, no water. And on top of that, it's not like they were, Moses was walking in the beach. He was tracking some serious terrain going uphill. So, okay, Moses is dead. But the problem in here is that they says because they, he delayed in coming down, they went to Aaron saying, make us gods. Now, I already, I already uh, 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 shared with you guys that there was other options that they could have done. But why didn't they chose Aaron? The reason why the sages say they didn't chose Aaron is because Aaron would have been exactly a type of Moses. What they wanted was another Moses according to their ways, essentially. They didn't want the real Moses. They wanted the Moses that they wanted to fabricate, essentially. A leader that would do what they want them to do, essentially. That's why they didn't go to Aaron, because if they would have gone to Aaron... Aaron would have continued doing exactly what Moses did. They didn't want that. They didn't want that accountability. So what do they do? We want another Moses, but we don't want it according to that Moses. We want another leader, but we don't want him according to Moses. We want it according to our desires, the way we want him, essentially. This is where the sin of the golden calf comes in, folks. You know, the sages say that, you know, they chose a golden calf. And there's a reason why they chose a golden calf. It's a, it's a picture of an ox. The sages connect this to Ezekiel. Where Ezekiel comes in a chariot and there's a picture of a man, a picture of an eagle, a picture of an ox. Carrying the Shekinah glory of Hashem. Well, the picture of a man was already Moses and he was out. So they didn't want that. So they chose the picture of a calf because the calf would have been the one in the north leading everything. So this is the reason why they chose the calf. Not because they reverted back to Egyptian worship. It had nothing to do with that, folks. It had to do with the fact that they wanted to assimilate into the, the Shekinah glory. They would lead him, but they wanted it their way, essentially. That's why they didn't choose Aaron. They chose another one that would do it, and it will be this case will be the calf. Because the calf is the one, the leading one in the chariot. And the, you see in the images, it was the calf was the one who was leading. So... This is the reason why they chose the calf. And, again, they wouldn't chose Aaron because Aaron would have continued essentially doing what Moses did, and that's, they didn't want that. Now, that's very prophetic for us today as well, folks. 2 Corinthians 11, 4 says, For someone comes, proclaims another Yeshua, than the one we proclaim, 
think about this. This goes back to the golden calf. Remember, the Yeshua, Jesus, was a shadow of Mashiach, of uh, Moshe. Both. They're supposed to look alike, essentially. Jesus and Yeshua both fulfill the intercessor between man and God. Right? He's the intermediate between man and God. He's the one that's going to deliver Israel to the promised land, right? Just like Moshe. So, in here, in Corinthians, he's saying, if someone comes, proclaims another Yeshua, then the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit, right, from the one you receive, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it really enough. Apostle Paul warns in here that a time is going to come that the people will build another golden calf, folks. A golden calf doesn't have to just be a golden uh, a calf, folks, because, again, it could have been anything. They could have chosen the eagle. They just chose the calf. But the... the the understanding is not focused so much on the cow. The understanding is that in their delaying, in Moses' delaying, has Yeshua delayed on his return? Well, back then he said, I'm coming soon. It's been over 2,000 years. I say he kind of delayed a little bit. More than a six hour, that's for sure. And what has happened since Yeshua's delay and returning back to earth? What have we done? We have said, you know what? We don't want nothing to do with this Moses. We want to fabricate our own one. And lo and behold comes the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus that allows you to do whatever you want to do. Sorry. It is the reality. It is the reality. We have replaced the Yeshua of the first century with the lies that unfortunately the Protestant movement has created for us. And we have, as Paul said, accepted it. As a matter of fact, it says a different gospel. I think that's an understatement. You better believe it's a different gospel because you have a different headship. That's why he says that if someone comes proclaiming an another, look, let's look at this. That word for another is in Greek, alos, which means different. So we need to contrast and compare the Jesus of today with the Jesus of the first century. Do they look alike? I'm not talking about appearance. I'm talking about character. Because that's what the children of Israel did in the wilderness. They built a golden calf, folks. Because the delay, the waiting. We grow weary. We, we, we start fabricating things in our mind that are contrary to what the original is. Look, in the 1828 Webster, that word means not the same, different, as we have one form of government, France, and another. One more, in addition to the former number, essentially. These are all definitions for the word another. We have added, or rather we have replaced in some cases. Because that's true, depending on what denomination you go. They'll say, well, Jesus did this, Moses still Moses, but Jesus did this. And now we're adding another one that's not in line with Moses. This is where the problems begin. Look, Baiz Halevi says this, the people knew that the sacrificial service was performed by a specific person, Aaron, in a specific place, the tabernacle. They thought, therefore, that they had the right and the need to create another such vehicle for their service. In effect, to design their own tabernacle that would suit their needs as they saw. Here lay their mistake. Jews cannot custom tailor their religion or their sanctuary. And that is extending for us today. You cannot custom tailor your faith, folks. I mean, you could. 
You technically could, but it's not going to be acceptable. That's the whole difference. You cannot custom tailor what's already been written and who he is. Jude 1.4 says, For some people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into what? Lawlessness. I mean, the Bible is over and over in the New Testament warns us about this. And yet, we have accepted it. They turned the grace. Is that true? Have we turned grace as a means of lawlessness today? Yes, we have. Grace covers it. So who cares? Let's just continue doing it. Let's not even aim anymore. Because who cares? We can't do it anyways, even though the Torah is teaching us differently. So they deny our Lord, Master, and Lord Yeshua because they're turning the grace into lawlessness. So what happened here in the incident of the golden calf? It says the next day Aaron woke up and said a feast into Hashem, a proclamation into Hashem. They started a new feast that Hashem did not command them to do. A means of worship. Can you not see it, folks? I mean, it's like crystal clear. It's what we're going through today. The golden calf is out there today. And it is our job to restore that to the original. What he really is and what he really looked like. Look, John 1.45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him. Who is him? Yeshua. We have found him whom what? Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Even in here, Philip said that we have found the Messiah. The true Messiah is the one who is of Moses. You can't deny that, folks. He didn't say it's a new one. He said it's the Messiah is the one who comes according to the ways of Moses. It has to fit the bill. Isaiah 42, 21. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake, it says. He will what? Magnify the law and make it honorable. Does it say that he's going to abolish the law and make it dishonorable? Or is he going to magnify the law and make it honorable? We know that that's talk. You know that this is a prophetic picture here, Yeshua? Isaiah 42 is talking about the Messiah. The Messiah will be the one to come and magnify the law and make it honorable. But what are we saying about the Messiah today? That he did away with the law. Okay, we're creating a golden calf. This is what we're doing. Every time you change the character of God, folks, you're creating a golden calf. Isaiah 51, 4 says, Hearken unto me. Now listen to this. This is amazing. Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, he says. While wow, talking about the unification of a hotness of God. He says, a law will proceed from me. It's Hashem who's speaking. That's why the Torah, the, the, the Messiah is also known as the Torah. That's why it says that a law will proceed from me and I will make my judgment to rest for a light unto the people, it says. See, if we're not following that Moses, that Messiah, folks, we're following a golden calf. I'm afraid to tell you. This is why it's so important. We're going to end with this. Hebrews 13, 4. Yeshua Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever, folks. He doesn't change. He is still the one in the image of Moses. He is still the one who came to magnify the law. And because of his delay, well, we call it a delay, not necessarily a delay, but in our minds, because of his delay, we have taken the bait and have created a golden calf. And this is where the Father is calling us to repent, to teshuvah, 
and return back to his word. Amen? So we've been talking a little bit today about um, golden calves, and we're going to continue along that line just a little bit today. Um, I learned some things about this half Torah portion um, through the sages that I had not known before. And so I'm going to share a little bit of, of that with you. Um, so let's get started. Um, we, we actually start our half Torah portion with Elijah being told by God that it's time to end the drought. I want you to go to Ahab and we're going to proclaim the end of the drought. But I wanted to back up just a little bit so you have an understanding of why the drought took place. So in 1 Kings 16, 29 through 33 and 7, 1, it says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And keep that in, keep that in mind. More than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the t temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of the Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So we see here that God has sent Elijah to Ahab to proclaim to him drought upon the region, upon the nation, the northern kingdom of Israel, also known as Samaria. And he says, Only at my word will the drought end. Well, now we begin to read in chapter 18 that the time has come for the drought to end. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. Chazal says that scripture makes it very clear that the drought came to Samaria as punishment for its sinfulness and as a result of Elijah's decree. And we remember that it was the decree that Elijah made on behalf of God that brought the drought. For the adjacent lands were not affected. Well, that's interesting. That means that there's some sort of geofencing, if you will, around this particular land that's not where, where, where the drought is occurring. Can you imagine? Only Hashem can establish this kind of boundary in order to prevent rain. While it may be raining on the other side of this boundary, rain that is producing food and fruit, that is bringing life to the animals and to the people. There's no rain on the other side of the boundary inside of Samaria. It should have been thus clear to all the objective, all objective people that the calamity was not a random occurrence. However, God now decided that the time had come to end the drought, and he wanted Elijah to announce it to Ahab in order that they not claim that it had been a natural phenomenon. Right? Because if it hadn't been for Elijah coming and proclaiming it, they could have used the excuse, oh, well, you said it was at your decree, and now Elijah doesn't go and the rain comes back, and, oh, well, it must not have been at your decree after all. And yet, he decreed it, and he said, until my word to return it. And so, Elijah now has to return. In Zechariah, we see another similar occurrence, where, where rain will not come to the nations who don't come to, to serve the Lord. 
It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Notice here that it's to worship him and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So they are one and the same. In worshiping him, they're keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. So in the millennial kingdom, in the millennial reign, the thousand year reign, if those who don't go up to serve the Lord and to observe the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot if you will, there will be no rain on that nation. So we've been given an example that the Lord can do this. And we're reading about that in 1 Kings chapter 18. But there will, be a, there will come another time when it will happen again. Chazal on Obadiah. Um, in 1 Kings 18, 3-4, we read, uh, And Ahab called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. Chazal says that Obadiah was a convert, a, de a descendant of Esau, and a trusted courtier of Ahab. Unbeknownst to his royal employer, however, Obadiah was a righteous prophet. Chazal continues with saying that his is the fourth book of the twelve prophets, what are generally referred to as the lesser prophets. And he was risking his own life to shelter and feed the 100 prophets of Hashem. Had it not been for his courage, they, like all the other prophets of Hashem, would have been executed by Queen Jezebel, who, like many oppressors throughout history, wisely realized that the best way to end Jewish loyalty to the Torah was to eradicate its inspiring teachers and leaders. Obadiah, if you've never read his book, prophesies against Edom. He calls Edom to repentance. There's only one chapter in his book. In my Bible, it's only one page long. Obadiah was a righteous prophet who had converted from the land of Esau as a descendant of Esau, from, from Edom, to be part of, part of Israel. He was no longer considered an Edomite. He was now considered an Israeli. An Israelite. The sages note that Obadiah's fear of Hashem suggests his piety was somehow related to his appointment as administrator of the royal household. They explain that Ahab knew that Laban's sheep had been blessed because of Jacob, and Potiphar's household had been blessed because of Joseph. Accordingly, the king reasoned that if a truly pious man were to head his household, he too would be blessed. Therefore, he engaged Obadiah and looked forward to great success, but it did not materialize. Maharashah in Sanhedrin 38b explains that Laban and Potiphar could be blessed because along with the merit of Jacob and Joseph, they also had righteous children. But Ahab's family had no such redeeming merit. Obadiah also risked his life in the depletion of his personal fortune in order to save the 100 prophets of Hashem, whom he had hidden in caves. Since the drought had created severe shortages and undoubtedly raised the price of food and water, his feet is all the more remarkable. So if you think about the fact that he's having to feed and water 100 prophets, 100 individuals who he's hiding in these caves, and there is a severe drought in the area, and severe, severe drought brings famine because plants don't grow, you're not going to have any grain, the animals are going to die because they don't have anything to eat, well that means that you're not going to have meat to eat because the animals are dying. So. Obadiah was using his own personal fortune in order to keep these men alive, these prophets alive. That's a pretty good, that, that, that's a pretty awesome thing that he was doing. I see there that he understood 
the Shema and the Ve'ahavta, that we are to give everything, we're to love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our resources. And he was doing just that. Now Elijah is going to call the false prophets and he challenges the people. In 1 Kings 18, 17 through 21, it reads, Then it happened that Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Was Elijah the troubler of Israel? Was it because of Elijah's actions that brought the drought? No. It was because of Ahab's actions and his, his poor leadership and his bad decisions that brought the drought. And, and Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Notice really quickly, it is 450 prophets of Baal as well as 400 prophets of Asherah. We're going to talk about, talk about that in just a second. So who eat at Jezebel's table? So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you dance between two opinions? If Hashem is the God, go after him. And if the Baal, go after it. But the people did not answer him at all. So if the Baal, notice here where it says if the Baal. He doesn't say if the Baal and the Asherah. The Asherim. Keep that in mind because we're going to talk about that here in just a second. First we're going to talk about how long you dance between two opinions. In the Hebrew that is Matai Atem Posechim Al Shitei Hasepim. Of course, I have to have the transliteration. I, I am not as fluent in reading the Hebrew as Richard is. However, we want to take a look at this word dance. It is the word in the Hebrew, posechim. Okay? Posechim is dance or to falter. It comes from the same root that we get, have the word pesach. But there's also a similar word that is peseach, which is a lame person. And so Radek says that a lame person, a peseach, shifts his weight from leg to leg since neither is capable of supporting his weight comfortably, so too Israel alternated between loyalty to God and to the idols. So you can imagine the Paseach, right? Even with, a, even with a cane, he's so crippled, he's so lame that he has to shift back and forth. My great-grandfather was, uh, I didn't even realize I was going to say this, my great-grandfather uh, was a breech birth. He was born in 19, uh, excuse me, 1889, I believe. And he was a breech birth, and he was crippled from birth. All of his life, he had to walk with canes, two canes. Do you think he considered himself disabled? The man ran a ranch. He raised Angora goats for a living. Angora goats have very long hair. He would shed, he would, he would uh, shear them and sell the hair for, uh, for the making of garments. You can imagine the goat's hair that was used to help make the tabernacle. Something along those lines. My grandfather was crippled and he, and he did have to shift his weight constantly from foot to foot because both of his feet were so crippled. Chafetz Chaim in Shem Olam 2.1 says, Elijah challenged them to make a choice. They could not have both. And we read that today. You can't, uh, you, you can't, have, you can't serve two masters. Right? You can't. In, in prayer today I read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 which says that you can't um, partake in the Lord's table and in the table of demons. Everyone knows that idolatry is a terrible sin. 
But one may rationalize that it is better that an idolater should serve God also rather than plunge headlong into exclusive pursuit of idol worship. This is not so. When one divides his allegiance, others are misled into thinking that it is acceptable to adopt a false belief as long as one also observes some of the commandments. This can not only deceive the worshiper but lead others astray as well. We need to remember that we are ambassadors of God. And at all times we are examples. It's one reason why he calls us to be perfect in our walk. Because if we falter in our walk and someone sees our faltering and we don't correct that, then they think that the faltering is okay. It's very important that we be perfect examples of how to walk in his ways. Chazal goes on to say that Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz contends that a mixture of good and evil can do more damage than pure evil because the good that one has learned and done can lead, to one, lead one to rationalize and even justify one's sins. For example, Eliphaz, the son of Esau, studied Torah under his grandfather Isaac, but he was the father of Amalek, the nation of evil incarnate. Wicked people can be very adept at formulating justifications for the evil that they do. Now we're going to read about the giving of the bulls. In 1 Kings 18, 22-26, it says, Therefore, let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leapt about the altar which they had made. I want to take a look at two verses in particular, 1823 and 1826. 23 says, Therefore let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, put no fire under it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. 26 says, So they took the bull which was given to them, and they prepared it and called on the name all from morning, to morning even until noon. We're going to take a look at two very specific portions of each of these verses, those which I've highlighted here. In one it says, Let them give us two bulls and let them, the, them, the, the false prophets, choose one. But in the other one it says, So the false prophets took the bull which was given to them. So we see that they're choosing one, and then in another spot we're seeing that they are taking something that was given to them. Uh, in the Hebrew... The uh, 1823, the the verse that we're the, the portion of the verse that we're looking at is Vaitanu lanu shenaim parim vayicharu lechem hapar haechad. Basically, that means let them choose for them for themselves or for us two bulls. Therefore, the, uh, let them choose one bull for them for themselves. So they're having somebody choose pick out two bulls to bring forth, and then the false prophets are going to choose their own bull for themselves. That word shenaim, that means two. Okay? That word two is, um, Chazal says that doing everything possible to give the false prophets no reason to blame him for their failure. Elijah let them pick the bull that they would use for their offering. Malbim has a general principle that there is a difference between the words uh, sheni uh, and shenaim, both of which mean two. The former... Shani, uh, Shani 
means that the two items are identical. The latter, which is used in our verse, means that the two are not the same. So in other words, we could have two bulls that are identical. They're, they're twins. There's a, there's a concept here. The other idea is that they're not twins. Accordingly, Malbeam suggests that one of the bulls was far superior and more desirable for the offering than the other, and Elijah let the false prophets choose the better one for their offering, thus giving them an advantage. The other idea, as written, uh, recorded by Midrash Tanchumah, comments that the two bulls were identical twins, and the one chosen by the false prophets refused to budge even though they pulled it. It ran to Elijah instead, saying, as it were, that it was unfair that it should be an offering to an idol while its twins should be offered to God. Elijah comforted it, saying that it would be the instrument of a great sanctification of God's name, and he brought it to the false prophets. And so there we see how they took the bowl which was given to them. Now, the idea here actually could work even if they weren't identical. We could still have a bull who understands that he's going to be used for, uh, for, for, for idol worship, sacrificed for idol worship, and he might still go to the righteous prophet. I don't want to do this. Don't make me a part of this. Right? Malbim suggests in verse 26, or comments that Elijah gave them the bull in the sense that he allowed them to choose whichever the, ever one they wanted, but he then had to convince the bull to go to them. Yeah, that's interesting. Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, once again, homiletically, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter observes that this illustrates the power of inner strength. 450 people could not move a bull that refused to be an offering to an idol, but Elijah, who had a cause and a faith in his creator, could harness his inner strength and prevail. Now, I want to go back just a little bit. Remember I said that there were 450 prophets, false prophets of Baal and 450 false prophets of Asherah. But right here it says there were only 450. And our, and our, our scriptures does, does say that there were only the prophets of Baal there. So what happened? Why? Well, Kazal actually comments that it's very likely that the prophets of, Ash, of, of the Asherim realized that what was going on here and they just didn't respond to the request, the call to come to the mountain. They didn't want to be made fools of because they knew that they were false prophets. So now we're, we move into the false prophet foolery, right? Because they began to act like fools. In 1 Kings 18, 27 through 29, it reads, And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating or he is busy. By the way, right here where it says he is busy uh, or he is on a journey, uh, Rashi actually suggests, or Rashi translates that as he is relieving himself, which I thought was a little just kind of humorous. Or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. We've got to remember that our God never slumbers. The God of Israel is always watchful over Israel. He is the best watchman available and he never slumbers. So they cried aloud and they cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when, when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice and no one answered to pay attention. When I read this, I'm, I'm reading that they were spirit-filled, but not necessarily the correct spirit. They're definitely not Holy Spirit-filled. I went to uh, a speaking engagement early in my walk, and, uh, and I saw people lying on the floor in ecstasy, rolling around as if they were Holy Spirit-filled, and it was very awkward. I had already understood that the Holy Spirit at times was guiding me. Maybe not speaking directly, but I was, was being guided. I was certainly being guided to Torah. 
And I knew that never once did I ever feel like doing what those people were doing. Foolery. Kazal says, uh, writes that Rabbi, uh, some commentary by Rabbi Hirsch, says the prophets of Baal shouted and pranced and prayed to no avail. They substituted ecstasy and contrived spirituality for genuine surface service of the true God, seeking to arouse a divinity that existed only in their imaginations. <laughs> their manner of worship included self-flagellation. Do you know, everybody know what that is? It's um, hurting oneself, cutting oneself. It talks about uh, cutting themselves until they, till, till the blood gushed out. Um, it is fair to say that the Jewish onlookers, despite their history of idol worship under the likes of Jeroboam and Ahab, still knew enough about the prophecy and honest about true prophecy and honest worship of God to realize that the prophets of Baal were engaged in foolishness. Imagine if you were looking upon this this kind of scene and how foolish they would be looking. Shemos Rabbah 29 says God brought complete silence to the entire area, lest the prophets say that any audible sound was a heavenly response. Metzudos records that there was no response because there was no listener, and there was no listener because the Baal was not a god. That takes us to Psalm 115, 4 through 8. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. That's idol worship. Because they are nothing. Now I'd like to address um, Elijah's repairing of this altar. In 1 Kings 18.30 it says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. The word repaired here is varirapa, uh, which is, uh, or varirape, which comes from the word, the root word rafa, which means repair. We understand that Yehovah Rafa is the healer. Okay? So, here we see that he is actually repairing, rebuilding, reestablishing an altar of some sort. <clears throat> We're also going to take a look at uh, the, the, the idea of come near to me. Elijah had been doing everything possible to prevent any perception of interference and accusation of trickery, and he wanted all of the people to come near and come close in order to observe his every action. Now, Chazal has, uh, writes in a prevailing opinion that there had not been a pre-existing altar of Hashem on Mount Carmel since such altars were forbidden. Rather, Elijah referred figuratively to the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. It was a ruined altar in the sense that the people of the northern kingdom had stopped thinking about the temple and the offerings that they should have, should have been bringing to its altar. By discrediting the service of Baal and inspiring the people to repent, Elijah now repaired that neglected concept. Now, I agree with that, but I don't necessarily agree with the first part. I believe that there was an altar on Mount Carmel. And so does Rashi. Rashi says that Saul had once built an altar on Mount Carmel when it was permitted to do so, back in 1 Samuel 15, 12, and the sinful kings of the north had destroyed it. This is the altar that Elijah now rebuilt. In 1 Kings 18, 31-32, it says, Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he rebuilt an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made, two, uh, made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. This word was actually translated as the word built. 
But when I looked at the, the, the root of the word, it actually means to rebuild, um, to, to reconstruct, to, say, to take something that was already there and to repair it. Um, but I do want to address that Chazal still said that such altars were forbidden. Those kinds of altars are forbidden now that the temple stands in Jerusalem. In Deuteronomy 2, uh, excuse me, 12, 2 through 6, we're going, to take, we're going to look mostly at the bolded text. It says, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. This place was Jerusalem. This place was the holy temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. Of course, at this point in time and in history, the two nations had separated. The ten tribes of the north and the two tribes known as Judah were in the south. Chazal says that from the time when the temple in Jerusalem was erected, it was forbidden to bring offerings at a bama, a, a private altar or high place. Consequently, it would have been forbidden for anyone to bring an offering at Mount Carmel, which raises the question of how Elijah was permitted to do so. The sages in Yevamos 90b teach that if an acknowledged prophet such as Elijah proclaims that due to extraordinary situation, a law of the Torah must be overlooked once but not permanently, the congregation must obey him. Elijah judged that the confrontation at Mount Carmel was required in order to discredit idolatry in the eyes of the erring multitude and to bring about a mass national repentance. To do so, he was permitted to order that an altar be erected and an offering brought. This exception, however, applies only to such extraordinary situations. Otherwise, if any prophet were to claim that a commandment of the Torah is not binding, he is liable to the death penalty for the commandments of the Torah or eternal. We can read a little bit about that in Deuteronomy 18, 20-22. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now we need to remember that Elijah is saying that I come in the name of the Lord. At the end of our text today, it actually says, I'm going to get to that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The offering itself, the burnt offering in the altar, had a specific purpose here on Mount Carmel today. It was not to cleanse or to atone for sin. It was not in thanksgiving or for peace. It was not to have fellowship with God, which means to draw near to Him. Essentially, it was not for worship. God says, don't make places to worship me. It was not for worship. It had a very specific meaning, a very specific purpose. And we read about that in 36, 37. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and I have done all of these things at your word. Now remember, that means he's calling on the name of Hashem. If he's a false prophet, then it's not supposed to happen. The thing that he's asking to be done will not take place because if he's a false prophet. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. So here's the reason for this altar, right? It is to know that he's done all of these things at the Lord's word 
and that this people shall know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you. In, 18, uh, in eight, uh, chapter 18, verses 38 and 39, it says, But then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yehovah, Hashem, He is the God. Hashem, He is the God. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Does maybe the last, the, the, the quote, sound familiar to you? Kazal says, upon witnessing the breathtaking miracle, the people realized as never before that only Hashem is the true God. And they declared emphatically and repeated it, Hashem, He is the God. So lofty was their newfound fear of God that this declaration is echoed every, every year at the climax of the Yom Kippur Ne'ilah service. And the congregation calls out seven times, Hashem, He is the God. At the end of our day of fasting and repentance, we long to attain the level of our ancestors as they raised themselves from the mire of sin. There was a national repentance, a national revival in Mount Carmel in this particular instance. The name Hashem refers to God's attribute of mercy, while the name Elohim refers to His attribute of judgment and punishment. Superficially, these would seem to be two conflicting perceptions, but when people come to a clear understanding of God's nature, they understand that there is no contradiction, that His ultimate purpose is to bring good to people. It is true that judgment dictates that the wicked must be punished for their sins, but even this is to make the world worthy to receive God's goodness and to recognize that Hashem is one, and his name is one. As we were talking about earlier, especially during prayer today, the oneness of God. And we'll end right with this. Psalm, the continuation of Psalm 115, verses 9 through 15 read, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. And I wish this for you personally. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Um, we look at the Shah portion just like the Haftor portion as the second witness to the Torah portion. Right? So about this Torah portion, about this Brit HaRashah portion, I should say. Second Corinthians, of course, was written by Paul. And it was written about 55 CE uh, to the church of Corinth. Kind of obvious, right? Corinthians came from Corinth. And there are all the saints in the region. So it was a bigger area than just the city of Corinth. Um, and before we see what connections we can find, I wanted to point out that Paul is often considered to be um, confusing. I don't know if you've actually heard, I wanted to add this in there. 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 16, uh, 15 through 17, actually, talks about Paul, right? It says, Think of our Lord's patience, facilitating salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Paul speaks about this subject in all his letters. Some things in them are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, leading to their own destruction, and they do the rest of, as they do the rest of the scriptures. So, dear friends, since you already know these things, continuously be on your guard, not to get carried away by the deception of lawless people, otherwise you may fall from your secure position. So that's important because we're going to be looking at Paul, and we're going to see um, 
some confusion. But first, let's see what kind of connections we see here in this portion. There was the stone tablets was mentioned. And obviously, in our Torah portion, we talked about the stone tablets. Moses' shining face was mentioned here. And how that shininess might be fading. And of course, the Torah portion talked about how Moses was going into the tabernacle. And uh, his face was shining so much that they couldn't see his face. So there's a lot of odd phrases. This is only eight verses long. Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 8. Eight verses long. And yet, we see some odd phrases that could confuse us. Um, and it seemed to be contradictory. We see tablets of stone compared with tablets of flesh. We see letter that kills. <laughs> we see a spirit that gives life. We see a ministry of death. That's an odd phrase, right? How about the ministry of spirit? Right? So it seemed like these are all like opposite phrases. That they mean opposite things. That they're one, one is this and the other is that. It seems pretty evident when we read it in our English, right? But yet we're going to see that these are not necessarily opposites. And that's where Paul ends up getting confusing. Paul, as we should mention, you know, was a rabbi of rabbis, right? He was, he was the, an intense rabbi. He heavily studied and uh, the leading Pharisee of, of his day, right? And so he spoke in these terms in, in the Midrash and in parables and in, in temple service language. And that's one of the reasons why he ends up being so confusing. She agrees. All right, let's take a look at tablets of stone versus tablets of flesh. So we see in Exodus 32... Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of testimony were in his hand, right? Those two tablets were the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. Later in the same chapter, we see that Moses uh, came down. His anger became hot because he saw the, the calf and the dancing, and he cast the tablets out of his hand, and he broke them at the foot of his mountain. Moses became the first man to break all Ten Commandments. <laughs> Literally. He broke... It's a joke, people. <laughs> So Jeremiah also talks about the tablets, right? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will see a new covenant in the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers back in the day. Right? That's, that's the Exodus section we're reading from. But I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. It's interesting we see the word here for new covenant. And the word there is not necessarily new as in brand new, never happened before. The word actually means renewed or rebuilt or repaired. Right? So think of it as a repaired covenant. It's a rebuilt covenant. It's a renewed covenant. It's been made fresh. Uh, Jeremiah continues, But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. First thing we want to note is that the covenant is made with who? Right? The house of Israel. And thus we want to join in with the house of Israel, not replace the house of Israel. We want to join with the house of Israel because that's what the covenant's made with. Right? And so we don't want to be those that are pushing away from Israel and, and trying to put down Israel. Um, we want to join with Israel instead. It's interesting that you see it's in their minds and the covenant's going to be on their hearts. This is the tablets of flesh that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians. The tablets of flesh is, is the heart. It's in their minds. It's in their inner being. Right? Jeremiah continues, No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity. Has this happened yet? We still, we still have to teach our neighbor to know the Lord. They do not all know him yet. So it's begun, but it's not complete yet. So what exactly was written on the tablets of stone and the tablets of flesh? Hmm, think it, think it was God's covenant, right? It was his commandments. It was his law. It was his instructions. 
And interestingly, it was on both the tablets of stone and the tablets of flesh. That same covenant was on both things, the tablets of stone being the written letter, right, written in stone, and also now we see it on parchment and paper, but it's also on, written on our hearts. It's the same covenant. It cannot be both written on our hearts and also abolished at the same time. It can't be done away with and yet put onto our, inside of us, right? There's a, there's a, this, um, there's something we gotta, we gotta balance there. We gotta figure out what the answer is. The answer is this. There was actually nothing wrong with God's covenant. It was not new, but it was renewed. So let's take a look at the next set of odd phrases. We have a letter that kills, and we have a spirit that gives life. Seem like opposites, right? Well, let's use Paul in Romans. We're going to use Paul's words to maybe help define Paul's words and see if we can get uh, some clarity here. So what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Oh, certainly not. On the contrary... I've not known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness except the law had said you shall not covet. This is an example of how he would not have known sin except through the law. It, that by defining what God wants, sin becomes doing what God doesn't want. Yeah? Romans 7 continues, And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion with the commandment deceived me, and by it, it killed me. Way, you know, kind of like time out. Right? The commandment, the Torah, the law. Paul's saying it, it brings death. You know, we, we know it is being the, um, the bread of life. It brings life to the world. It's the lamp unto our feet. And yet he found it to bring death, and it killed him. So certainly Paul's going to say, <laughs> we got we to move on from this, this Torah thing, from these commandments. On the contrary, Paul says the law is holy. The commandment is holy and just as good. That's his conclusion after saying that it killed him. Right? So we can see where some of this confusion comes in, right? Let's take a look. It was bringing life, and it found it to bring death, and he said, and he says the law is holy. So how do we balance those things? Well, we've got to come back to our basic question. Was the letter and the spirit, are they actually opposites? I would suggest that nope. They actually work together. Torah without obedience is death, versus Torah with obedience equals life. Or said another way, the Torah without the heart is death. Or the Torah on the heart is life. Right? Or you could say the letter and the Torah are actually the kind of same thing, right? Different words. You could say the letter without the Spirit is death. And the letter with the Spirit is life. If we were to rewrite this top header, it should more accurately say the letter by itself kills or brings death. And the letter with the Spirit together brings life. Right? So you have this attitude, this heart attitude. It's written on our hearts. It's written on our tablets of flesh. It's inside of us. If we have this attitude, you know, without the heart, that we just want to get by with as much as little as we can, um, skate by, just do the bare minimum, we're gonna we're gonna get in. That is an attitude without the Torah being written on your heart that leads to death. Whereas the idea of the Torah on the heart is that you are pursuing, you're pursuing His ways, His understanding, His commandments, and that brings to life. Right? It's, we don't have to necessarily go read it. It becomes written on our hearts. An analogy that's perfect here would be the idea of if you ever pursued a musical instrument. Let me raise your hand if you pursued a musical instrument or a sport or something where you had to practice a lot. See some hands? Yeah? So let's say I wanted to learn the flute. If I picked it up right now, I've never played flute before, it ain't going to sound very good. Right? 
I learn practice. Maybe I study with somebody who knows how to play the flute. They give me some pointers on how to do that. But I, I'm still not that good just because I heard about it. i got to do it. And I'm going to be bad at it first. And I'm going to do it some more. And I'm going to practice and practice. And I'm going to get better and better and better, right? It's the same thing with God's commandments and God's instructions. We want to be practicing, pursuing it. Pursuing that excellence. Knowing that we're not perfect in the beginning, but we can pursue that excellence, right? We're going to pursue that perfection. We're going to get better at it. We practice it. We don't just give up because, oh, if it's worth doing, we want to pursue it, not just give up because we think we're going to fail. So the bottom line was there's nothing wrong with God's covenant. Right? So how we balance those confusing words of Paul? We've got to know that the covenant was not, is not new. The new covenant, the New Testament, kind of a misnomer, right? It's really just the, the front of the book and the back of the book, essentially. It's all one story. It's, so the new covenant is not new, but renewed. God did not change the covenant by replacing it. Rather, he changed how man receives it, right? So he wants to place the stony heart that rejects the law of God with a fleshy heart, a renewed fleshy heart, one that longs to follow after God's own heart. What we're talking about here is a heart transplant, right? This is a medical procedure that God wants to do inside of us. And it's been that way from the beginning, right? We go back to Deuteronomy. We see that God's saying, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. We have what life and death, we have good and evil. Those are contrasted there. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, walk in his ways, keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. We have life we have versus death. And we have life if you keep his commandments. Choosing not to keep his commandments leads to death. Right? And it's that heart, that heart that is written on our hearts that we want to pursue his, his commandments. Right? It's, it's our desire becomes to that passion to strive for that excellence. So let's bring it to the modern example. We, do we desire to obey the laws of our country? Okay, well, I'm not, there's a lot of laws in our country, so don't answer out loud. I'm not talking about having to pay for a fishing license to go fishing. Right? There's lots of examples where I could give where perhaps there's too many laws that are impeding uh, us. But I'm talking about basic, basic stuff. How about don't steal from your neighbor? How about don't take a bribe in court or, or give a false testimony? How about don't murder? We could all agree that that's a good, basic, fundamental law that our country has. Yeah? Well, do we feel that obeying that law would bring death? Or vice versa, does it bring life freedom to us? Well, using this example, it becomes pretty obvious that if we obey that law of don't murder, that leads to life. If we disobey the law of don't murder and go ahead and murder, that would lead to death. Right? So this becomes a fairly obvious example in that case. What I'm going to show you is a picture here that kind of brings the point home. And this picture is going to be a gate entrance to a prison where the guard, uh, prisoners are being brought in. And the sign above it says, Obedience to the law is freedom. How ironic. These prisoners who thought that they were free to disobey the law, do whatever they wanted, now they now find that their disobedience to the law is a loss of their freedom. Right? And if we're willing to try and obey man's laws, fallible man in this country, right? how much more so should we obey God's commands, the infallible God, our creator, who has given us these instructions? So disobeying God's law um, is actually lawlessness. And we see that in 1 John. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And so sin is lawlessness. These things are equal. And what is lawlessness? It's not keeping the law. It's not keeping the Torah. It's Torahlessness, if you will. And so we see here 
that our friend Paul, who was very confusing, he warned us all about lawless men. Peter also warned us about lawless men. John, yep, he warned us about lawless men. How about Yeshua? Well, sure. He also warned us about lawless men are being lawless. And what does the church teach today? They say the law no longer applies, right? And you make you wonder, who, who are these, who is the New Testament really talking about, right? We, we say otherwise. We say we want to ab abide towards Torah-ness, not Torah-lessness. We want to abide towards a keeping God's instructions, not lawlessness, right? So it's better to do what God wants than what everybody else wants, right? It's, it's, it's up to us, to, because it's written on our hearts, we want to pursue that excellence. We want to pursue His instructions and, and His Torah. And that's my prayer for you. Thank you for being a part of our teaching. Be sure to visit our website at www.thefoundationoftheword.org for additional resources and to help us financially. It is our hope and desire that what we teach will help you in your walk with Hashem Elohim, that we bring more souls into His kingdom. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.